If you've struggled with stress, balance, or burnout, and simply feel discouraged or even defeated, and if you're ready to move from force to flow and enjoy ultimate Zen success in your career, health, or relationships, then the Zen Success Show is for you. Your host, Carissa Sims, is an entrepreneur, corporate consultant, best-selling author, meditation teacher, and healer who has found her own Zen success. Here's your host, Carissa Sims. Welcome to this week's episode of Zen Success. Today, I have the pleasure of speaking with Eddie Taylor. So let me tell you a little bit about Eddie. On May 12th of 2022, two days after my birthday, if you're curious, <laughs> I was wondering if he'd summit on my birthday. He joined six other climbers on the summit of Mount Everest for the first all black ascent of the Nepalese mountain. Seven months earlier, Eddie climbed the moonlight buttress of a sandstone wall in Zion National Park. These two ascents show the ability of Eddie to Eddie to be balanced, being a teacher, husband, father, and climber. Yay, you get to say your father. Upon completing a double major and finishing his track and field career at the University of Colorado, Eddie went on to become a passionate rock climber, public school science teacher, head track and field coach, and more recently, Patagonia ambassador. Welcome, Eddie. How's it going? Pretty good. So you have accomplished so much, but I know you have a lot going on. How was your day today? What did you do? Um, it was my first day back at work. Uh, school started pretty soon. And so it's the first day back. It's kind of a shock after being off for the summer. Is it like a different world? Is it like another reality? <laughs> Yeah. I mean, you just go back, you go from, you know, having your time and figuring things out when you can to, you know, not nine to five, but seven to four o'clock every day. Yeah. Yeah. And do you have to do the kids are not back in session, right? No, we have one week of prep time before the kids come back. Okay. And you teach at a high school? Yeah. Centaurus high school. So, so when you, you're teaching and the kids aren't there, do you still have to work those hours? You go in at seven, seven to four, or do they let you work from home a little bit? No, we're in every day. Um, we have some in-person trainings, getting the rooms ready to go, um, collaborating with our teammates and whatnot. So we're definitely COVID's completely done. Almost. It seems like we're <laughs> We're happy to be back in school. Yeah. Oh my God. That smile is huge. You're happy about that. That's awesome. Yeah. Well, that'll be nice. And and when you come back to school, are you gonna know any of these kids? Are they going to like have a celebration party for you? Or are they gonna like not know anything that you did this uh summer <laughs> and spring? Um, I mean, it depends. I'll know some kids, but I mean, I teach primarily juniors. I taught freshmen a couple of years ago, though. So I may have some of those. I haven't got my class list yet, so I may have some of those kids. But uh, a lot of kids know about the climb. I don't know how much I have to or I will end up talking about it. But I'm just excited to come back and start teaching. 
Yeah, that's awesome. It's so wonderful that you have that passion to inspire kids and like help kids being a coach and teacher. And I, I know there's congratulations in order for other things too. Anything else going on in your life? Um, <laughs> oh, um, yeah, my wife's pregnant and we're going to have a, uh, kid in two months, a little less than two months. Oh my gosh. We're really excited about that. That's amazing. Wow. And did you find out that you guys were expecting when you were climbing? Like, how did you find out? Um, so we knew a bit earlier, earlier this year, um, yeah. So around, I guess, January, January, February, we knew. Oh, um, okay. So before the trip happened and luckily I was going to be gone during our second trimester, which is the better time to be gone, I think. And yeah. yeah. So did it give you a, like a, a different type of motivation to like do it now before you had a kid or to like inspire your child and tell them stories about it. Did it feel like you had an extra boost? Um, I can't really say it did in terms of like climbing's always been a part of my life and Anna's life and she really understands it. And I, I mean, logistically it's probably significantly easier to go on a two month vacation when you don't have kids. Mm -hmm. Um, but other than that, I don't, I can't really say there was like an extra motivation. Oh. Like I always want to come home safely, you know, and I don't want to be like, well, now that I have a kid, <laughs> I really, really, really want to come home safely. It's like, you know, you always, yeah. Want to yeah. come home and be alive. Yeah. That makes sense. Yeah. So, um, how did it feel like when you reached the summit? Do you, did you put a flag in? Like, how was, tell me about that moment. Um, hmm. take me so, there. Yeah. I mean, for me, um, we went up summit on basically the first good weather window of the season. It was a crowded, it was a crowded day and me and one other person on the team who left a bit earlier, we kind of passed the crowds and we're on the mountain more or less by ourselves, um, on the higher part of the mountain. And, um, I ended up summiting around two 30 AM. So there wasn't that big of a view. It was pretty dark, but also like I got up relatively quickly. And once we got to the top, it was kind of like, all right, we're halfway there. We got to turn around and go down. So I, I didn't really have this big, like profound moment or anything. It was more of like, it was just like, that was halfway. Think about, yeah. think about like, a you race, still right? have to survive on the way down. Yeah. You still have to get down. And I just talked about it being really crowded. And so as I was going down, I was passing, you know, I wanted to make sure I passed all the people. I got back to the South summit. Sorry. Mm -hmm. Um, on the way down, I wanted to make sure I got back to the South Summit before kind of the big group of people got there because between the South Summit and the real summit is just a really thin ridge line. And that's where things can kind of get crazy and you start having to wait for people going one direction or the other. So I didn't I can't say like I had this profound moment at the summit. Um it was kind of just a step, you know, one step in the entire journey, if that makes sense. 
Yeah, absolutely. I can understand that. And was there anything special? Like what made this summit extra special? Um, I kind of see that like the trip as a whole was special. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, it was the first all black expedition, not to say that other black people haven't climbed Mount Everest, mm-hmm. but, uh, but together, like, yeah, I mean, like, so before this expedition, like when I was initially getting involved, I was interested about it. And so I started researching and I had found four black people had climbed Mount Everest. And then I started digging and digging and digging. And I found that it might be 10 or 11 black people have climbed Mount Everest. And that's how many people who were, that were an entire team, including base camp and et cetera. And so like, it wasn't really the fact that like no black team had done it, but the biggest thing for me was that no one was telling those stories. Like I'm a pretty yeah. avid climber. I'm someone who's pretty in touch with like the outdoor community and the climbing. And like, you know, I didn't even know that that many black people had climbed it. And I really didn't know about their experiences. And, and I think that a lot of times there's this idea that maybe some team decided to bring one black person along. And we wanted to make, we wanted this trip to be something that like, you know, basically every role of the team was carried out by a person of color um, from the planning, from the fundraising, from the, you know, the base camp support, every, our cameraman, um, every role was something that like, you know, they could take ownership of and be like proud of this trip. And so that's kind of like, I kind of say the Everest summit wasn't that important, but like, the point when we knew we raised enough money and had bought the tickets to fly out to Nepal, that was like the point where it's like, Oh my gosh, we're actually doing this. This is awesome. Like we've done all this work and, and we had a pretty successful expedition. So. Yeah. That's amazing. Was there ever a moment when, before you went where you thought, Oh my gosh, we might not raise enough money. This may not happen. Did you ever have that thought or did your team ever think about that possibility? I mean, yeah, that was like the thought 90% of the time I feel like. Oh, <laughs> um, really? Yeah. Okay. I mean, I got invited on this trip. Um, and the leader of the expedition, Philip Henderson, has amazing ideas. And like, he's the, he's the idealist. And he's the guy who made this thing happen and put it together. And he invited me to, they were doing weekly Zoom calls. And um, when I started to join, there was already a team formed of nine other people who were interested in this project and planning on it. And when we started getting down to it, though, we had, basically, there was no money. <laughs> so like, Everest is expensive. That's one thing I've always known. But there was no money there was kind of a strategy in place, but it wasn't really being carried out. And so, um, how expensive is it to climb Everest? Is it, is it like 50,000 or just to give our audience an idea? I would say at the low end, um, probably 60,000 and at the high end, it could go as high as 200,000 per person. And that's not including flights and gear and all of those things. Oh, that's only for the actual climb. Oh my gosh. That's not yeah. even gear and everything. Wow. Yeah. So, I mean, all said and said, we raised a little over a million dollars to get 11 people to Mount Everest. Okay. Okay. That's, and that includes hiring Sherpas and people to help you. And what about the cameraman? So you filmed your climb as well. So, um, yeah, so 
I can go, there's the permit costs. Um, uh -huh. And that's just a standard cost that you pay the government. And then you have outfitter costs. And so base camp, I mean, it's just a melted glacier, basically. And so you have your Sherpa support, you have base camp cooks, you have Sherpa cooks, like people who cook for the Sherpas while you're there. And then you have food, you have oxygen. Um, we we did an oxygen ascent. Um, and so there's just Some a people lot. do an ascent without oxygen. Yeah. Yes. Yes. And some people do. I think one person did this year. Um, uh -huh. Wow. No not very did. many. <laughs> Holy no, not person. very many at all. <laughs> one guy did it this year and I think he was on his fourth or fifth try. Um, it has been done a lot more from the Chinese side, but China's closed for uh, COVID okay. basically. Mm -hmm. um, and they're only open to Chinese nationals. So like, the Nepal side is a lot harder to summit without oxygen. And it just, it, it just doesn't, it's only happened a handful of times in like the past 10 years. Wow. Interesting. Yeah. It, it seems really important because if you don't have oxygen, then you need that time to acclimatize, right? To yeah. If you don't have oxygen, you have to acclimatize a lot longer. You have to be a lot, a lot more fit. Um, you have to be, naturally like you have to have natural abilities that like you can't train for your body to exist in the death zone oh what is the death zone uh, above eight thousand meters basically uh, like people are not meant to exist that high oh wow that's interesting yeah to the point where like doctors have done like tests you know those hypobaric chambers uh-huh that uh divers go into to um you know, so that they don't get the bins if they come up too fast. So they've done a bunch of tests in those with people. And they they basically said that people shouldn't be able to summit Mount Everest, like the general person. But some people have like a genetic trait that they're able to survive that long above the death zone. So no matter how much training and how much acclimatization, like some people just can't, can or cannot do it. And that was a level of risk that I didn't want to take or anyone on our team as well. So, yeah, yeah, it's really interesting. Did you ever read that book Into Thin Air with John Krakauer? Hey, John Krakauer. I actually waited until after the expedition to read Into Thin Air. <laughs> That's good. <laughs> yeah. That book is insane, isn't it? So you read it. It's crazy. It's, it's crazy, so crazy. But yeah. But the IMAX funny, movie like, was going on at the same time as that book. So if you ever watch, yeah. it's like so insane to have that synchronicity if you watch that imax and read that book it's like wow yeah yeah it's crazy and it's it's crazy it's like i did see the everest movie that mm -hmm. that uh years ago that was based off of into thin air but like my experience on everest was completely different yeah it sounds like it How, tell me yeah like it was it was just a really positive experience we had a group a great group of people um, we mm -hmm. spent time with our Sherpas and we were like singing and laughing every day. And um, we had all, we had all for the most part been fit enough to do every leg of the trip. I mean, it just wasn't like, we've all have so much experience that it didn't feel like it was this most torturous thing that we've ever done. And it really like, didn't feel like this exclusive place that I would say the book made it out to be like, yeah, it felt like, yeah, it felt like it was something that if you really wanted to do, you trained for it, 
Mm-hmm. Um, you're an outdoors person in terms of like you climb a lot, you know, your systems, like it's something that's accessible. And mm-hmm. I think one thing that the book didn't capture very well is even if Everest isn't your goal, like base camp's accessible for a lot more people. And yeah. you see this place, incredible place and meets these incredible people that you, you would never otherwise yeah. meet. Because that's just amazing place in general. Like my husband, Colin has been to base camp in Everest. Yeah. 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 So, I mean, I don't know. I just felt like, you know, the book was really good in documenting the tragedy and everything that happened there. Mm -hmm. Um, But, and also, I mean, that was 1996. It's 2022. So things have probably changed since then as well. So. Interesting. Because isn't there a whole timing of the weather? That's what I remember about that book and climbing Everest, because it's there's important windows that if you don't capture, you could get stuck. And then some of the movies that I've seen, it's so crowded, like you literally can't go (laughs) anywhere. I've just seen this like train of people. Did you ever feel like you missed a window or fear of your life or anything? To be honest, no. Um, when we were moving on the mountain, most of the time we were, we were moving in like groups of one or two or by ourselves. Um, we were never, besides that summit day, because it was the first good day of the year, we never really had that, like, you know, the big hundreds of people around us. Again, besides that summit day. But we were moving up and down the mountain many times and it, you know, for the most part, it felt smooth. I got to say the one scariest part, though, was in the ice fall. Um, the ice fall, um, the book did do a good job of explaining it. I mean, you're just you're in a river of frozen ice that is falling down steadily. Like you don't see it fall down, but, you know, you'll go hike up the trail and then you'll come back and the fixed rope that you were clipped into is completely covered in like a couple feet of ice that just fell down. And luckily you, you didn't, weren't standing there. So, I mean, that I would say was actually the, like the scary part. And you try to mitigate it by hiking in the middle of the night. Um, okay. I, luckily no one got hurt. Um, this by not year being able fall. to see and stuff in the ice fall. Okay. Yeah. But like, if you were hiking in the middle of the day in the ice fall, like things are collapsing all the time and it's really just a number of time number. <laughs> I forgot the. Just a, a matter of time. Before yeah, just a matter of time mm-hmm. before something happened. Yeah. So did you have any, it's, it's really interesting to hear your perspective because it's just nice because I honestly do have that fear and it's from reading that book. It's from watching the IMAX movie about yeah. harrowing and how many people died And, and so, but I think, like you said, it was a while ago and things have changed and people have maybe gotten a lot smarter about climbing now. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think it's like a multi, there's a lot of reasons. I mean, one, like my experience was the way it was because we came to Everest as very, I would say pretty skilled people who, you know, have been living that lifestyle for like 10 years. Yeah, I did decide to do Everest a year and a half ago, but I had already done other big mountains and have been doing, I think Phil, you know, Phil has been climbing for 30 years. Other people have even much longer resumes than me. Um, KG had, he's climbed Kilimanjaro 70 sometimes. 
Um, he's a guide up there. So like, yeah, they weren't hiking 8,000 meter peaks, but like they, they are really into the understanding of how to be a mountaineer. Mm-hmm. And so then the other thing I think is that the Sherpa people um, have been taking more ownership of the mountaineering experience and ah. they've realized you know they've realized that that's a way they can support their families i mean there's not a lot of industry in nepal uh-huh. and so they've gotten getting people up to ever getting people up everest down to a science so like you can come in with our skill level you can come into the person who's never stepped a day in the outdoors and two years ago you just started to train really really hard and because of how well that they've been guiding the mountain and figuring out some of these tips and tricks to make it smoother they've effectively decreased how um they they've decreased the fatalities they've decreased that's a lot amazing of going up on a yeah so now the ratio of sherpas to people climbing is higher and they've taken ownership of the mountain gotten more money and economy for nepal and their families i just i think that's amazing that's that's great so did you have any inspiration um for climbing any of the people on your expedition or anyone in your life um i mean not really i kind of i kind of like stumbled into climbing um my mom when I was young took me to national parks and made it a point for us to like go outside and do these little nature hikes that we hated to be honest but like to see these incredible places and then as I got older I got more into sports and whatnot and we'd still do these family vacations but um I came to see you because when I was younger I also learned to ski and I and I really loved being in the mountains like I love that feeling of movement and like doing something active in the mountains and so I came to see you boulder and I actually ended up on the track team and so I didn't really ski at all but afterwards um just being near the mountains I started climbing I actually a couple people invited me out to climb I tried it and I just immediately fell in love with it and started trying every single form of climbing there is like high altitude mountaineering I primarily consider myself like a rock climber on big walls all over the world. Um, Do you compete I'm, in rock climbing? I'm not a competition climber. No, oh, no. Okay. But I'm just like a, I guess a hobby, hobby yeah. climber mm-hmm. or lifestyle climber is what a lot of people call it. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. yeah. Yeah, that's amazing. I know you have Martin Luther King Jr. on your website, the Full Circle Climbing Expedition. So, Maybe for some of your um, other climbers, he's an inspiration, you know? Yeah. And that was a really cool thing that happened with that. Um, So I know we were talking earlier about where we had no money. We thought this exhibition was going nowhere. And once the, the trip started to become more public, the National Civil Rights Museum reached out to us. Wow. Yeah. And so I fielded a call with them. And we we chatted and they were really interested in this expedition. They thought, you know, especially it coincides with the mountaintop speech. Um, that's the I Have a Dream speech. It's called uh-huh. on, on the Mountaintop. And they they really wanted to be a part of this. And so I brought it back to the team. We had a few more conversations and they were really excited to kind of help support this expedition in any way. And obviously a museum's a nonprofit. It's not a big 
like they're not going to be able to pay for us to go to Everest, but they really were excited about like, you know, trying to combine this piece of history with, um, you know, the civil rights movement and things that mm-hmm. have been going on. And, and it was really cool just that we were getting support from not just the climate industry, but people pretty far outside of it. It was really cool. Yeah, that's neat. And um, are you getting a movie deal out of this? Or did you get attention from any production companies? Yeah. Um. So from the onset, um, one of the guys on the team had had a friend who was they've made a few movies and they're a pretty a pretty good movie produ- production couple. Mm-hmm. And um they wanted to be a part of it or he, I'm not exactly sure what happened, yeah. but either he asked them or they wanted to be a part of it. And so they were kind of in the background through the whole process. And then um, before, like they were, they were like, we're going to make this movie. We want to make this movie. And right before we left, they had finally made a deal with Westbrook entertainment, which I had never heard of and most hadn't heard of, but then we learned that that's actually the same production company that made uh made king arthur okay king King richard sorry um the venus and serena movie Mm -hmm. as well as cobra kai so it's kind of they have two almost opposite very different popular films yeah and so i love cobra kai i met (laughs) (laughs) i met one of the actors in the um la airport that's a good good show yeah from karate kid yeah but yeah, so right before we left, they um wanted to like commit to documenting the project and coming out with a some type of movie film project about the about our project. And so still kind of waiting to see what that looks like. I think it's going to be released sometime next year. Oh, that's cool. So it might be a documentary or it might be a feature, huh? Yeah, something like that. <laughs> I don't know much about the movie business. You'll have to wait and see what happens. So what type of training did you feel like you had to do to make you feel ready um, mentally and physically for this expedition? Um, so kind of going back to like, I've had a lot of years of experience in the mountains. Mm-hmm. And I think just being that doing that consistency is what really helped me. Um, to be honest, I was putting so much time into the fundraising, into the media, into trying to get this project off the ground. I didn't train as much as I imagined I was going to train. It wasn't like this Rocky Balboa montage or anything like that. (laughs) But, uh, I did sign up for a ski race, uh, about a month before I left, which was the, it was a pretty big ski race. You do 10,000 feet of vertical and about 27 miles. Um, up and down. And so I signed up for that. And so it made, forced myself to go skiing a couple times a week and get out, um, ski uphill. So like hike uphill and ski down. So forced myself to do that, which I thought was good training for Everest because yeah, I don't know, a lot of people know the altitude's great, but then like also the hiking down sometimes it's pretty hard on your knees. So if I could, you know, really simulate all the hiking up and do the hiking down, for the actual expedition. That's kind of, that was, I'd say my training, you know? Yeah. Okay. Okay, cool. Well, how much do you feel that a climb like that is mental versus like your 
physically fit body? I think it is very mental. Um, mm. I think that, you know, we talk about Everest and there's lots of different skill levels up there. There's people that, you know, some would say they don't belong in this mountain. They're not skilled enough. But people say that about someone at any skill. There's mm. people who have like climbed all of the four, eight, all the 14, 8,000 meter peaks have climbed Everest 10 times and are super fit. Um, but I think like the number one thing that everyone has in common who's successful on, on Everest is they're very patient and they have a lot of perseverance regardless of where they come from. Mm. I think that like the physical training and being in shape gives you higher margins of safety. It helps you be able to summit faster. You can go in shorter weather windows. You know, you can be out longer with like less ill, ill averse effects. And it also, I think like being more fit and more trained physically is going to help you just have a more enjoyable time. But mm -hmm. I think that number one thing is that mental side. Like I've seen really fit people struggle to climb mountains here in Colorado because, you know, mm -hmm. it's just mentally really hard putting one foot in front of the other when you're tired and you don't want to do it. Ah, interesting. So do you feel like anyone can climb Everest or do you feel like it takes a special person? Um, again, I, I think going back to the mental, I think it takes a, I don't think everyone has the patience for it, mm. no matter how fit you are or that because level. Because how long does it take? Is it like a month? So I was gone 47 days. Okay. Some expeditions are 60 to 70 days. We just, we had amazing weather. Okay. Um, but yeah, it's that, it's that long away from family and friends and your home and you're sleeping in a tent and you're waking up cold every morning. Like there's a lot of those those aspects that are that you know any at any minute you can just like you know pay a thousand dollars take a helicopter back to civilization but it's just can you sit there day in and day out and you know most people get sick at some point on an Everest expedition and it's hard to recover from getting sick up there so, mm, so but no one got sick on your team one of our team members got sick three days in and uh three days into hiking the base camp and he pushed through, he took a couple of rest days. He eventually made it to camp three, but then he had to go down. He never could really recover from, you know, being, getting just a common cold 30 days earlier. Interesting. Interesting. So how did you meet your team? How did you connect with all, all these badass climbers? Um, kind of serendipitously. Um, I was out in Uray, Colorado with my, I guess my dog was about almost a year at that point. And we were at the dog park and I was just walking the dog, playing with him in the dog park. And this guy named Phil Henderson walks up with his dog. Oh. And we're in Western Colorado where there is very, very few black people. And so we were <laughs> so chatting. Like, yeah. I mean, it was like happy. Yeah, we were chatting and we saw each other like throughout the weekend as it's, we were ice climbing. I don't know if you're familiar with Uray, Colorado, but it's this no, little I'm town not. where, yeah, it's this little town in the mountain where they have a public ice park where every night they turn on the sprinklers and the, over these rock walls, basically ice forms and people come from around the world to climb the ice and then go sit in the hot tubs afterwards. So it's like very bougie, bougie oh, ice climbing. Oh, how funny. That's awesome. Yeah. So we were just there for the weekend weekend me and my wife and my puppy and we met phil and 
after the end of the weekend, we traded numbers and uh, we kind of kept in touch and talked here or there. And um, we went on a ski. We skied just one random weekend a few weeks later and we started talking about the project and he got to know me a little bit better and thought I would be a really good fit for this, his project that he was starting. Oh, that's that cool. Time, I didn't really know, um, but he had, he was already pretty far into the planning process. And there was already, I think, nine people on the team at that point. Actually, there was 10. One person left. Um, but there was nine people on the project at that point. And kind of when I commit to doing something, I kind of go all in. And I had summer break coming up. And so that was when we really started the whole fundraising push. And like, we're going to go public. We're going to start talking to companies. We're going to like do everything we can to make this trip happen. And it's just, it grew bigger than we ever could have thought. Oh, that's exciting. So how was your wife, Anna, through this whole process? Was she supportive? Like, did she show her support in any way? I know she's also a climber, right? Yeah. So, I mean, initially, I wasn't that interested in doing Everest. And it's like, this is a cool idea. I'll help. I can help you guys in any way, but I'm not really that interested in necessarily climbing. And Oh, um, got it. You saw like, more yourself as more support for them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Like seeing how I could help, you know, help mm-hmm. get the trip off the ground. But I was kind of not necessarily like that site done climbing Mount Everest. I just knew it was expensive. I knew it was cold. I knew it was a lot of walking. Um, and I knew I knew from all the stories I've told that it can be a really incredibly dangerous place. Mm-hmm. Um, but I did a lot of research and Anna. Anna thought like she from the beginning was like, this is an opportunity that you have. There's no reason you shouldn't take it unless you really don't want to. And she was really, really supportive about it. And um, which was great. Like it was just great having that support behind me before I even made the decision if I wanted to go or not. Like she could kind of see the bigger picture of this trip um, before I even did. So, Oh, that's so sweet. That's amazing. Yeah. Did she ever have a desire to, I mean, I know she was pregnant, but did she ever say, oh my gosh, I want to go? <laughs> um, I think she, she wanted to go to Nepal and we'll probably go back to Nepal at some point. Uh-huh. Um, but I don't think she's kind of like me who probably didn't have this firm desire to climb Mount Everest. If that makes sense. Yeah. 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 Well, well, tell me about your background a little bit. Like where you grew up and if you felt like it was ever a barrier for, um, you know, getting into colleges or anything. Um, so I like to say I grew up in Minnesota, even though I only went to high school there. Mm-hmm. Um, but in reality, I've lived like all over the place. Um, Oklahoma, Michigan, New Mexico, Arizona, Minnesota, and then I've called Colorado home for the larger part of my life. Oh, wow. So you kind of grew up all over. Yeah, I grew up all over. And, um, but then I spent every summer in Chicago and with my dad growing. So like, I kind of was in all these communities around the country. And I was in like, you know, in inner city Chicago, where I mean, it was a very black community where all the rest of the communities were um, predominantly white or Native American. Actually, I was in a, the town I lived in Arizona, there were like, five kids in my school that weren't Native American. Um, and we had to get put in remedial Navajo class, which is kind of funny. <laughs> um, That's we were cool. like, 
know, as I don't remember what grade I was in, but we were with the kindergartners learning the basic colors and numbers and things. So it's kind of funny. Um, but yeah, so I've lived in like a lot of different places and had a lot of different experiences. And I would say that because I've had those experiences, I've been able to get into the outdoor sports. I've been able to spend time in the outdoors. I, you know, I went to CU, which is a very white college because I've had so many experiences of living with people that are different, different than me. Um, but I mean, I see the barriers and I see a lot of barriers that people have. And mm -hmm. it's just like, I've, I mean, I, I've basically been privileged to have had so many different experiences growing up. And I can't say I loved all those experiences back then, but it's been very easy for me to be able to maintain friendships, learn from people who are different from me, um, work with people who are different from me. And I think that that's gone a long way to my success in the outdoors. Yeah, that's awesome. Did you do chemistry in high school? Um, I mean, I, I think I took him, I took the class chemistry, but I, I wasn't saying, I wouldn't say that was like my focus or my passion in high school. Yeah. Um, that that shifted in, in college. Yeah. I mean, I was just good at science. I was good at math. Oh, and science. Okay. Yeah. I mean, I was, I was really passionate about the sports that I played in high school, mm -hmm. but I was good at math and science. And so when I went to college, I continued on um, with a math major as well as I added the science a little bit later, the biochemistry. And, um, but there I, you know, I didn't go to college to play sports, but after walking on and joining that track and field team, I, uh, that became my passion in college as well. Oh, that's awesome. And yeah. did you, so what got you to be the head coach at the high school that you're teaching at now? Is that like a separate job? Or is that like a bonus that they get that you also teach track? Uh, I mean, it's a separate job. Like anyone, mm -hmm. you know, anyone can apply and become a coach at a high school. Okay. Uh, but yeah, I mean, I, so I, after graduating college, I was a chemist and I analyzed water quality for the city. Okay. And it was kind of like the same thing where I said, oh, I was good at math. So I became, I went to college and studied math and science. I was good at science. I was ready. I could not ready for this job, but my skills lent to this job. So I became a chemist and I, I didn't really find it that fulfilling. And so then I started coaching in which I had no interest in coaching like whatsoever. But my college coach like asked, would you, would you want to coach at this high school? And I was like, oh, I'm not really that interested. And then that high school coach called me. He's like, oh, I got, I got your number from your college coach. And do you want to come coach? And I was like, oh, not that interested. And he's like, just come one day in off season. And I came one day and it kind of like, it stuck. And I, I love the kids. And I was like, oh, I'm going to come back. I don't know if I'm going to coach, but I, lo I loved it. And that's how you can kind of see a pattern. A lot of things in, in life happened. And yeah. Then I um, had a whole season and I went through that season with, um, with the kids. And that was what really made me want to shift into education and, I was seeing these other like teacher slash coaches being able to see the kids during the day and then see the kids in the evening. And I felt like that was a really good connection. And at that age, you can really, you know, you can take kids from who may not be very confident in life and not really see where they're going. And you can teach them to do a sport where let's be honest, most kids don't like to run, but you can teach them to fall in love with running. 
and then have opportunities afterwards. And so that's kind of the role I feel like I've split into and really enjoy and kind of enjoy making those long-term relationships with uh, that age group. That's awesome. I love running. I, I was never one of those kids that hated running. I always, to me, it's like, freedom. I I did cross country and track, but I always enjoyed cross country so much more. And my dad ran and he was a really good runner. He was more competitive, but I really did it and I still do it for pleasure. So I think it's exciting that you coach. Yeah. Um, and I hope to be running for a long time. So my kids aren't into it yet, but maybe in the future, maybe you'll inspire them someday. (laughs) <laughs> my kids. Yeah, maybe hopefully. Yeah. I I'm not inspiring them yet, so we'll see. So, I wondered since this podcast is called Zen Success, what is Zen Success to you? What is Zen Success? Um <laughs> I mean, I don't know. Success is just but like for me talking about this expedition success was like when I knew it was happening. Yeah. And like, I didn't really care about if we were going to summit or we weren't going to summit. It was that like, we got the community behind us to go do the project. And like, you know, you have success that the trip happened, but then you also have success when you're seeing like people writing to us and saying how, this expedition inspired them here or they went on a walk now like there's people who literally said i haven't like went on a walk around my block and who knows how long and now i see you guys like going and climbing everest like i need to get outside and i need to be doing something <laughs> yeah like, i don't know it's kind of it's kind of crazy seeing like all these ripples and like you know we did this this program for all the schools basically um any school who tunes into Flipgrid every week, they have this Flipgrid live conversation. And so we did one from Everest and we were getting all these letters from kids around the country who saw our expedition and were really excited and wanted us to be successful. And so like them wanting us to be successful was like success in its own. Oh my God. That's so exciting. Yeah. They're learning about a different place in the world. They're learning about picking a goal and chasing their dreams. And so that's kind of what I got. <laughs> yeah, that's amazing. Did they have that program for all BVSD? Um, or was it, it just throughout the nation? Yeah, it was open to any public school um, mm-hmm. in the nation. Well, any school in the nation. Um, yeah. And so, yeah, Flipgrid Live, it's just uh, every week they do a lot. Like they did one from the bottom of the ocean. They oh, had the- that's cool. Yeah, they had the person, the the coach who won the Super Bowl this year on there. So they have a lot of really cool and inspiring people. And so we were able to get into the schools. And then also um, the first one, well, before the expedition is this thing called Newzella, which is just like basically a magazine that brings down the level of writing to eighth and ninth graders. Mm-hmm. And so one random day in school where before I was really telling all the kids at school about my expedition or anything they're like oh I read about you mister like where'd you read about me oh in English class and it was like all the kids had read about our trip it was kind of crazy (laughs) 
That's so cool. Well, it's been such a pleasure talking with you and hearing about your summit. And if you'd like, I can put the website for your team in the show notes. Would you like that for people to reach out to you? Yeah, yeah. You're welcome okay. to if you want to. It's all okay. Um, yeah, the full circle yeah, good. climbing expedition. Much more success to you on your journey, Eddie. Have a great day. Thanks. You too. That's it for today's episode of Zen Success. Head on over to iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, or wherever you listen to shows. Zen Success is also available on the radio in select markets through amfm247.com. Subscribe to the show and share with friends. Be sure to head on over to zensuccessshow.com to help you on your Zen Success journey. And join us on the next episode. May you find your own Zen Success in life.